Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Sugarcoated Murder is proud to be a part of The Oracle Network. Welcome to Sugarcoated Murder Podcast. A brilliant true crime podcast hosted by two zany sisters, all while baking up delicious treats in their kitchen. Here are your podcast hosts, Karen Devaney and Ann Varner. kitchen yes. kind of we're like on the outskirts of the kitchen today yeah, we're, we're being wild and crazy i know we're wild and crazy today we have such an incredible honor that we have a special guest we i do. love a special guest me too all the guests are special they're this all one's special because really we, we always think nobody's gonna want to come on our podcast i know who would ever want to talk to us and then suddenly we find somebody we're like friends <laughs> yes so today we have joni west with us Love Joni West. She has written a true crime book. We're going to get into it. But first, I want to tell our listeners what I'm going to be doing in the background. Okay. I'm a baller. You are a baller. I'm a baller. So today, uh, we're making some Kentucky bourbon balls. Mm-hmm. We've got the mix already done. We've got the, well, first of all, the chopped pecans marinated in the bourbon for two hours. How about so, that? Hello, my life. <laughs> and sometimes I marinate for two hours in bourbon. Yeah. And it makes you happy. It does. And then we also have some room temperature butter. Yes. Which is really important. And some confectioner sugar. And that's all mixed together with the marinated <laughs> the marinated, <laughs> marinated pecans. pecans. And now I'm going to start rolling them while we talk to Joni. Okay. And eventually these little mama jamas are going to get dipped in chocolate. They are. And then our mama is going to get another goodie I Good know, email. Because again, mama requested some bourbon balls. She loves bourbon balls. And our mom, she, you know, she's getting up there in age, and we feel like she shouldn't have to cook her own cookies when she's got two girls that she raised to bake. That's right. So we're going to send her more. We just sent her some almond, almond crescent presents, yeah. cookies last week, and now she's going to get some bourbon balls. Mama's going to be rolling in it. Yay. <laughs> so while I'm balling. Let's talk about our special guest. We're going to talk about our special guest. Yes. So Joni, can you introduce yourself and let everybody know the name of your book, which we already know, but we're going to let you introduce it. And then um, just give us a quick synopsis of what the book is about, and then we'll start talking. Great. And while y'all are doing that, I'm going to be balling. <laughs> Take it away, Joni. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for that great introduction. And my name is Joni West, and I have written a true crime book about my father's case. My father committed um, a really heinous murder back in 1991, which exactly 30 years ago. And... Um, it looked like an open and shut case, and it turned out to be anything but, and it actually changed the legal system forever. Wow. Uh, yeah. The name of the book is Full Frontal Murder Memoir, and the subtitle, which kind of tells you, you know, what to expect, is A Daughter Reveals the True Story Behind the Shocking Crime That Went from Tabloid to Textbook and Will Change the Way You See Blame and Brains. Wow, that's so exciting. Very exciting. Uh, The case 
very tabloid. Um, and I'm going to, well, for one thing, before I even get into it, I just want to say that there is, you know, there is a victim here. Um, my stepmother, you know, did die in this murder. And I, and I do try to be really sensitive to the fact that someone died. But I am also incredibly honest about all the facts and the background of the case. And I don't sugarcoat it. Ah, yay! <laughs> leave that to us. <laughs> I'll leave the sugarcoat to you. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> uh, at any rate, uh, just a little background before the murder uh, is that I grew up in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey, which is an upper middle class town about, at that time, I don't know what traffic's like now, but it was about 25 minutes from midtown Manhattan, very desirable place to live. And um, my father was an incredible provider and was very successful in business. Uh, he owned the company that owned all of the rights to the advertising on all the buses in New Jersey. So um, wherever you live, if you live in any state, there are public buses. And if you live in a city, you know, there's tons of public buses. Right. Uh, and you see ads on them all the time, inside, outside, on the back of them, wherever. And he owned all the rights to that advertising. So if you were a big national brand or you were a local brand, whatever, you would have to pay him to lease that space and put your ads up. Wow. What a great business. business. Yeah, that's that's such a creative business to be in. It it was an amazing business. And he also was really good, besides making money, that he used to trade a ton of things. Like, I was really into photography as a kid and uh, and as an adult. And he traded with a camera store. He put the camera store on the buses. And I got to pick out as many cameras and darkroom things. Oh, wow. That's amazing. That's like a kid in a candy store. That's exactly what it was. That's For me, that's exactly what it was. And my father, growing up, as far as I was concerned, was the best father anyone could ever possibly have. He was always in a good mood. And when I say always in a good mood, I mean always in a good mood. I never saw him get angry. I never saw him get uh, anxious or frustrated or anything, which I thought was a superpower. And... Um, <laughs> Because, I mean, it was uncanny how undisturbed he was by anything. Right. And he was, you know, I called him my problem solver. Like, every day, my mother was the reverse. My mother was was very neurotic and very emotionally abusive towards me. And for me, my whole sort of young life uh, was balancing between how fabulous my father was and how distressing my mother was making my life and you know some of the examples that I give in the book um, and it turns out a lot of people (laughs) have commented and written me and related to this but she was always on my case about losing weight which was just a nightmare and um, she was also on my case about cleaning she had this OCD cleaning thing and no matter what I did, it was wrong. And in the book, I talk about how she got mad at me and didn't, you know, wouldn't talk to me because I folded a washcloth. Yeah. I thought, oh, I would have been a lost cause in that house. Me too. And, and how many ways are there to fold a washcloth when it goes in half and in half and it ends up a square? There's only one way to fold it. Right. <laughs> That's very true. Unless there's some origami fit trick that she was thinking of and you were unaware of. It's funny you should say that because in the book, that's the word I used. I said, to this day, my origami offense eludes me. <laughs> uh, and, and that's exactly, you know, so it was, it was that kind of thing that would keep me on edge all the time with her. 
when I got home from school. But meanwhile, you know, I called it the treacherous time between getting home from school at like 3 or 3.30. And then when my father would walk in the door at 5.30, it would stop, you know. But I would go running. He had a, a study that um, he used to go up to. He'd come home, kiss my mother hello, go up to his study, look at the mail. And I'd go, I'd go running in and be like, you know, I did this and I did that. And she said this and she said that. And it was just like, and he would just... He never said anything bad about my mother, and he never talked to her about not doing these things, but he would just say to me, oh, that's your mother. Yeah. You know important. I love you. <laughs> and, and he would just smooth it over, and then I didn't care because I knew she was hopeless for me, but I knew that, you know, I was the apple of his eye. Yeah. So, but I still needed to hear it every day because it was always like, you know, some crazy thing. Um you know, I, t- I talked about a few examples in the book, um, and uh, one of them, one of them uh, was how one day my mother picked me up from school, and I must have been, well, I had to be past. I was in a private school. My brother and I went to private school, and that school went from seventh grade to twelfth grade. And my mother used to pick me up after school. And I'm guessing I was in around eighth or ninth grade, and she was, and she was obviously really like, you know, mad at me and not talking to me and. I couldn't figure out why, and finally, she she. It turned out that she was mad at me because she asked me to change my sheets, which was the first time oh. in my life I had to. Yeah. She said, "Strip your bed and throw everything in the laundry." So I stripped my bed and threw everything in the laundry. But at that age, having never changed my sheets before, I didn't know that a mattress pad wasn't a sheet, oh, and I God. put that in the laundry. My mother didn't talk to me for a week because I did that. Oh so, my goodness. Okay, so that gives you the idea of what she was like. On the, you know, she was the absolute reverse. I, I refer to them like a yin yang. Like she was, my father was the absolute reverse. He would just be like, you know, who cares? Don't worry. Blah blah blah. Like nothing bothered him, and he was, you know, not going to stop loving me because I didn't, you know, I folded a washcloth. <laughs> right. Well, it seems like they were a match made in heaven because I can't imagine that anybody else would have been able to deal with your mom. Well, that's an incredibly good point because I used to think that too. I used to think that they were a perfect pair because my father was so calm, so mellow, in such a good mood all the time. And my mother, although she was really good, you know, she was good with other people, but she had a thing about me, um, which probably went back to her childhood. Right. um, But... Yeah, I used to think he's the only one who could put up with her because another guy would probably like you know go, go nuts with this kind of stuff. Yeah, but she didn't. She didn't really do that to him. She did it to me, and then I reported it to him. Right. At any rate, when we get to the second wife, then we'll talk about how could anybody <laughs> again? How could anybody put up with her? Right. It's right. Sort of, yeah. It's sort of his superpower, and it's interesting to see how people who are, you know, who are somewhere on an abnormal emotional spectrum, who they're a perfect fit for. Right. And sometimes those things work out and fit together just like a yin-yang symbol. Like one, you know, one balances out the other and everything keeps moving along. So um, anyway, regardless of the fact that my mother, you know, made my life kind of difficult, my father made it awesome and I just... You know, I knew he was different than other fathers. I knew he was different than other people because even at a young age, I realized that other people sometimes get upset or get angry or, you know, would have reactions to things. And he just couldn't be shaken. Like nothing bothered him, which I thought, again, you know, people spend tons of money to get that Zen. Right. Yes. And lots of medication. (laughs) 
So at any rate, um, right after I graduated high school, um, I was planning on going to Rochester Institute of Technology to study photography. And um, But a week, uh, well, within the month after I graduated, I think it was a couple of weeks later, my mother was diagnosed with lung cancer. And um, so I decided to defer my admission for a year. And since I was so close to New York, I thought I would go into New York City and see if I could, you know, make my way, which I did. And uh, my mother was sick for like two years and my father was by her side. You could you could not have have asked for a more attentive spouse. And I know that sometimes, you know, when people get cancer, they get really sick. You know, there's a divorce or there's all kinds of other things going on. He was devoted, took care of her, even stopped going to work, let his partner run his business so that he could be with her 24-7. Wow, that's really devoted. Very devoted. devoted. Um, I didn't get to spend really much quality time with him after that because I was off making my way in New York and he was taking care of my mother, but I decided I would keep living home. You know, I was 18 when she got diagnosed and I was 20. She died two years later when I was 20. Wow. And, and she uh, was a heavy smoker, right? Yeah, she was like two packs a day for, you know, she died at uh, 58. Oh, wow. Very young. Yeah, and she probably started, I don't know, in her teens or something. So, yeah, heavy smoker. And um, at any rate, when she died, I really wanted my father, you know, my father's, I, I really wanted my father to start dating and get out and have some fun because he had been living in this hell with her for two years. Sure. And, um, so he started dating and, you know, he was a wealthy man and Jewish in a town that was like half Jewish mm-hmm. and was until death do your part, you know, marriage, like sure. he was prime, he was prime bachelor material. He really yeah. was. He really, he was the whole package. Exactly. So everybody's fixing him up with, you know, my mother's old friends are all fixing him up with people. And within a month after my mother died, um, he was introduced to this woman, Barbara, and she, she was quite a character. And when you talk about how can somebody put up with, you know, like my mother and, and, you know, how my father was perfect for her. Right. My father was perfect for Barbara. Um, and again, you know, I, I, I feel nothing but sympathy for her family uh, but this is my story and sure. I'm telling the truth. Of course. So she, before I met her, um, she, well, there were a couple of things that made an impression on me. You know, my father all of a sudden wasn't going out with a different woman every night, which I was kind of happy he was doing. Um, and I was still living in the house. So my brother had moved out of the house and it was just uh, me and my father in this big house in England Cliffs. And then all of a sudden, my father keeps talking about Barbara, Barbara, Barbara. And I'm like, okay, he's really serious about this one. But it had only been like a month since my mother died. Wow. And, yeah. Um, and then my first impression of her was very, very odd. Um, and I describe it in the book. And now, just to make a point, um, I changed details. Barbara's real name is Barbara, and it was a very public crime. So everybody knows, like, my father is Herbert Weinstein, and she is Barbara Weinstein. But I changed details of what kind of company somebody might have owned, what kind of business someone might have owned, you know, different things. I changed my stepsister's name. I changed certain things out of privacy. But uh, let's just say this is that this story works with the real fact as well as what I 
changed it to. Right. Okay, so one day I'm in the house in Englewood Cliffs because I'm, I'm moving out, and my father is paying no attention to me. Here he had been, you know, so attentive to me for my whole life, but now it's like, you know, I'm 20 years old, and, and he didn't help me look for a place, didn't give me any advice, didn't offer to do anything, and, and I just figured, okay, I'm on my own. I just was like, all right, I'm on my own, and I didn't even bother asking. But I went to the house one day while it was in the process of being sold. So there was still, you know, it was only a couple of months after my mother died. I'm packing up my stuff, but there's still all kinds of stuff. And the kitchen still has all the kitchen stuff in it, right? All my mother's stuff. And uh, my mother was a great cook and baker and all that. And at any rate, I, I went to get something out of the refrigerator to eat. And then I went to get something to wrap the food in. And I opened the cabinet where my mother kept all the food wrapped. And it, and you know what a food wrap shelf looks like. Yeah. You've got your, all your different tubes in the boxes in the shelf. And I open it up and it looks immediately, it looks wrong. And all of the boxes that had been there were pushed to either side up against the sides of the cabinet. And right smack dab in the middle is one box that in the book I say is marked price, paper, and plastic. And Price is, is in my book, <laughs> her married name from her previous husband. She was divorced okay. with two kids about the same ages as me and my brother. Mm. So let's say Price was her, was her previous name. And she had been divorced for eight years. Her ex-husband was very wealthy and owned, let's call it a paper and plastic company. <laughs> okay. Okay. And, and um, in the middle of the shelf, just like sitting there so you can't help but look at that one roll is this price paper of plastic and in my head and this was just my first impression of her and I know it's a weird thing but I wasn't wrong about thinking all of this stuff that I thought was weird was weird um, I thought why would a rich Upper East Side New York she lived in Manhattan on the very posh Upper East Side on East 72nd Street very ritzy you know really nice and um, from what I heard, she had gotten this huge divorce settlement. Her husband was was incredibly wealthy, like, you know, probably a top 1% or wealthy, her ex-husband. And, you know, and owned a variety of companies, you know, and, and malls and theaters and, I don't know, maybe sports teams. I mean, just like big money. And I'm thinking, why, after you've been divorced for eight years, first of all, do you still have a box of this stuff? <laughs> and, <laughs> and secondly, why would you bring it to your, um, you know, to your boyfriend or your male friend or whatever in a, an upper middle class suburb of New Jersey? Like, what were you thinking to bring that there? Because they never cooked in the house and she never brought any food to the house. And it just made no sense to me. Like, why would you do that? And the only thing I could come up with was that she was kind of marking her territory and wanted me to see it because I think she probably assumed that I would see it there in the cabinet. It sounds like it. It sounds like she was putting down stakes. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I guess it was there to impress me, whatever, or, you know, just to say I'm here. I don't know what it was, but it really rubbed me the wrong way. Right. Wow. Um, So then a couple of weeks go by and I finally meet her. And my father picks me up and I don't want to get into too many details. Like you really have to read the book for all the juicy, fun stuff that happened. But, <laughs> um, but my first impression of her uh, was really uh, not a good one. I had moved into a new apartment, uh, into an apartment in a high rise in Fort Lee, New Jersey. They, my father didn't do anything to help me move. They show up 
And instead of bringing me a plant or a bottle of wine or a box of cookies or something, you know, or whatever, she brought me two unusual and kind of bizarre housewarming presents. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> you read it. You know what I'm saying. Yes. So, you know the makeup displays when you're at Macy's and you go to like a Lancome counter and they have all those vacuum form plastic trays that hold like the different eyeshadows and the lipsticks and whatever? Yes. You only get one of those if you work for the store or you work for Lancome or something like that, but it's not something you go out and buy. It's something that's like, you know, part of your training or whatever. Anyway, she brought me one of those. <laughs> oh. And I could, for the life of me, was like, this is very, like, I didn't even know what to say because I just thought it was the most bizarre thing because obviously I knew she had probably worked for Lancome behind a counter at some point and probably saved it and was now giving me this garbage from her closet. Oh as my, my gosh. That's yeah, funny. that's, that's brilliant. That's, that's nothing says love like a recycled gift from yesteryear. <laughs> Sure. You can't re-gift something that, you know, that, that's a makeup display from a retail place. Right. And then the other thing was a used designer handbag, which was a whole other, like, <laughs> basically she was cleaning crap out from the back of her closet and giving to, it to me on her first meeting of me as a housewarming gift. Wow. And immediately the message I got was like, you know, you're secondhand goods and, and you're not worth even going out and getting, you know, thinking about. That's right. what it, I'm sure that's what it felt like. It would have felt like that to me too. Oh, absolutely. You know, like, yeah. uh, you know, you're not worthy of anything but some trash. You are definitely less than me. Yeah. So we, I think she was definitely making sure you knew your place. We had a stepmother um, in our lives that was very much the same way where she enjoyed making sure that we knew our place. Always. Always. <laughs> Which is not where we thought it was. <laughs> well, it's not where we ever had been before. No. <laughs> so. it's, I, and I feel for you. I mean, you know, obviously, I mean, you know, my story takes it even, you know, many steps further than most of the people I know who have evil step monsters. But, <laughs> um, you know, we're not wrong when we suspect that there's, you know, that there's something wrong with them that maybe they have. You know, I was just thinking... And I even said this in the book, like, back then, I hadn't studied personality disorders. Like, now, you know, you turn on Dr. Phil, you hear him talk about narcissistic personality disorder, or, you, you know, you turn on YouTube, and there's a million people talking about, you know, different kinds of emotional problems and borderline personality, and, and all of those things, you know, are real personality disorders, but I didn't know. I was 20 years old. I just thought... She was, you know, honestly, just a rich New York bitch. Right. I mean, hey, that's who, you know, couldn't care less about me and my brother. Right. Right. You know. Well, um, it doesn't seem like that was far from the truth. It just didn't have a label. Right. It, exactly. And the first, so that day we went out to lunch and, you know, you would think that someone who's walked into your life in the position that she did, which was to be, you know, obviously soon to be engaged to my father because they were by now inseparable. You would think, I know if I was in that position, I would be asking all my friends, how do I, I would even be asking like, you know, a therapist or something, how do I deal with this? And I'm coming into these kids' lives when their mother just died and this is their father. And, you know, I want some professional guidance and some guidance. Sure. And I certainly would err on the, on the side of being empathetic towards the kids and saying, you know, look, I'm, I, you know, I'm. first I would say, how are you doing? You right. Know, I'm so sorry for your loss. Yeah, something as basic as sorry for your loss. Right. 
Yeah, which is something we would give a stranger. I mean, right? You know, if you if you hear about somebody's passing, that that's the first thing you think is, "I'm so sorry for your loss." Even though I don't know who you are, I'm still sorry that you've suffered a loss. Which would have been so much more valuable than a used handbag and a used makeup, makeup thing. Display. I don't even know what to call that makeup thing. Good point. Yes, exactly. Um, so basically, we spent the whole lunch that I met her talking about her, and you know, it was obvious that that she wanted to marry my father, and she talked a lot about herself. Didn't ask me anything about me. You know, basic narcissistic kind of stuff. Right. And, uh, and I walked away from my meeting with her, thinking I do not like this woman. But I understood why my father liked her because my father had been fine with my mother for twenty something years, and she was neurotic. Right. This woman was narcissistic. <laughs> But she was pretty, and she was nine years younger than he was. She was like forty-five, and he was fifty-four, I think, at the time. Uh-huh. So, so, and she was like, you know, she lived in the city, which is where he would want to move after his kids were out of the house. So she was geographically desirable. She was very attractive. She liked the same things he did, like they liked fine dining and going to the theater, and you know, they were a good couple on the surface. Yeah. So fast forward, and they get married, and um, and I talk about the wedding in the book, and that's kind of, you know, an interesting scene. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of, all the details and all the stuff that really makes you go, oh, my God, is in the book, and I don't want to get into all the details of all the stories. No, because that's the best thing about your book, Tony. The very best thing about your book, it's not just a true crime book. It's not just about the murder. You have all of these delightful little nuggets of information about how you came to be and what you went through in your life. It just, it, it's just absolutely amazing. Right down to how you got the name West. I love it. <laughs> absolutely <laughs> love it. <laughs> so. Thank you. Um, well, I will leave that to people. To yes. But, but to tell the story, I'll fast forward to um, they, my father sells the house in England Cliff. And thank you, by the way. Um, he sells the house in Englewood Cliffs. He moves into the, into the apartment with her on East 72nd Street. They get married at Tavern on the Green in Central Park, which you can't get more you know fabulous New York than that. And um, and basically, I tried to just keep my distance from them, and I was living my life, which I go into detail in the book of all the things I was doing. And then um, uh, something happened a couple of years. Um, about two years after they were married, um, I was living I was living in uh, Hackensack, New Jersey, which is about half an hour from where they live by car. And one morning at three in the morning, this little building that was next to my apartment building had a gas leak and it exploded. And they had a huge picture window. And I would say the building was like maybe 60 feet away. Like their window was probably 60 feet away from or 80 feet away from my picture window. Mm -hmm. And their picture window and the whole building blew up. But their picture window blew in my picture window and all the glass came in all over my living room, all over my dining room. It went under my front, my apartment door across the hall into like the room across the hall. It was just unbelievable. And, um, and I described that in detail. And then I, I lived uh, up the hill from a Sheraton hotel. And when I got out of the building after the explosion, 
um, there was, you could feel the heat in my apartment and I described that, you know, my apartment looked like Hell's Disco Ball. <laughs> wow. You know, there's all these little pieces of glass, like everything that used to be a gigantic picture window was now like little pieces of glass, except for the pieces that look like pizza slices sticking up out of Oh the my gosh, that's and horrifying. The flames, <laughs> and the flames were all reflecting all over my apartment and, and you could feel the heat through the window, even though the building was, you know, 60 feet oh away. Gosh. And I didn't know if the you know, my partner was going to burn up, what was going to happen. I get out of the, the building, I go down to the, the lobby, and, and I just, and I'm pressing all the intercom buttons trying to get everybody to get out of the building, because if you were on the other side, you wouldn't have seen what happened. You would have thought it was, a, you know, a bus accident or something, right. a drug accident. And I describe it as pushing all the buttons like a braille reader on meth. And then I was just going nuts, right? And then when I left there, I heard the fire people say any building on the block could blow up because it's a gas leak. Oh. So I just kept, and I don't know why anybody stayed, but a lot of people stayed. I walked down to this hotel and I, I wind up calling my father. I waited about an hour to about two hours because I didn't want to call at three in the morning. And I called my father at like five in the morning. And this is before cell phones. This is payphone. Yeah. I'll be at the Sheraton. And I called my father and tell him, you know, I don't want you, you know, I don't want you to hear this on the news, but there was a big explosion and blah, blah, blah. And he's not making any reaction. And I'm thinking, okay, he's tired. He's not hearing me. And I keep telling him, like, I don't know if I have a, an apartment to go home to. I don't know if, you know, that side of the building burned down. Um, <laughs> you know, and I'm going on about all this, this huge tragedy. And he's like, oh, okay. And he hangs up. Oh. And, and I just. Nothing. She gets yeah, nothing. nothing from him. <laughs> nothing, nothing, nothing. Like no reaction, and Gosh. I and I was so shocked. You know, I mean, here it is. Like I had so many things on my mind from the explosion, and him having no reaction. Like what he should have said was, <laughs> "I'll be there in, in twenty minutes." Right. And Five in the morning, he could have driven from his apartment in New York to my apartment, you know, to this hotel down the road in 20 minutes of that hour, maybe less. And he didn't say anything. He didn't do anything. And I just couldn't even think about it. But that was the moment that my relationship with him changed forever. Yeah. Because, you know, it was one thing to be insensitive about his new wife. But it's another thing when I'm calling you with the biggest disaster of my life at five in the morning and you roll over and go back to sleep. That's crazy. I mean, you would think he would have said, jump in a cab. I'll pay the cab when you get here. Come here. Or are you okay? <laughs> what, what do you mean? Do you have any eyebrows left? of your hair? <laughs> yeah. Are the, uh, did, did, did it hurt your, are you singed? I mean, what, well, tell me. Something. Do you, are the clothes still on your back? Anything. But no, it was like, okay, see you later. Bye. Exactly, exactly. I should have had your phone number back then. You guys would have oh, helped me out. We would have totally helped Absolutely. you. Yes, I mean, even from South Carolina, we would have done something. Absolutely. We would have said, we've got to get Joni some cookies. Let's get in the kitchen now. <laughs> exactly. But he did nothing and... And then, um, and then after the explosion, I was like the next, you know, later in the morning, I was allowed to go back in the apartment and it hadn't burned, but you know, it was obviously a disaster. And I called my father to tell him what was going on. And he was like, Oh, okay. And hung up. And I called him like two more times that day. And both times by the third time, it almost sounded like he was wondering why I'm calling him at all. Like, 
you know, like, why are you keep telling me about this? And you keep giving him another chance to react. Like, here's something. Here's some more news for you. You want to react to this? Like, what's it going to take? Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, so that changed our relationship. And again, I go into, you know, all of that in the book, but that really was it. And after that, I didn't talk to him for months. Mm. And, um, and eventually, um, uh, I decided that I would only see my father and Barbara on Passover and Thanksgiving. Okay. And I would try to just keep my distance and that was going to be it. And there's a whole another little incident that happens with the insurance adjuster where my father wouldn't come and help me without bringing Barbara, but <laughs> I'll let people read that one. Oh, um, gosh. <laughs> I feel that. Yeah, I feel that right down to my bones, Joni. I feel you. We can so we can. There's so again. There's so many things in your book that we can relate to. Talk about empathy. (laughs) Not on the like. Not on the level that you experienced, but right there at the edge. Yes, right at the edge. Um, well, I'm sorry about that, but it's, it, it is good to have people who understand. Yes. Because when you understand, you understand. Yes. yes. Oh, and I yeah. think that's why I couldn't put the book down. I couldn't stop reading it because I was like, oh, yeah, I know how she feels. I know exactly how she feels. She could be in our support group. She could. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> uh, so, so, um, so I was just into, you know, it was just going to be Thanksgiving and, and, um, and Passover. And then at one point, um, they invited me for my birthday. And that's a whole other scenario in the book, which turned out to really be a fishing expedition for my stepmother. It had nothing to do with being nice to me for my birthday. And after I got suckered into going there for my birthday and then realized what she was up to, I said, I will never go there again. And I told my best friend, I called her when I got home because no cell phones then. And I said to her, if I ever say I am going to that apartment again, you slap me like Sharon did with Nicholas Cage in Moonstruck and say, snap out of it. That's a great reference. I love it. Good. And that was in May of, uh, of 1990, um, and when I turned 29, I'm 60 now, and um, and then January rolls around, and I get this phone call from you know from my brother, and um, and actually I'll, I'll read I'll read the first page here from the book, so because that's kind of where it starts is um, you know I jump back and forth in the book, but um, this might be the best way to tell this little part. Uh, <laughs> It was exactly nine years ago to the hour that I last saw my mother alive. I was thinking about that when the phone rang. It was 1991, so I actually had to walk across the room to answer it. It was my brother, and he sounded broken and scattered like shattered glass. I knew instantly something was very wrong, not just because of his voice, but also because we shared an apartment, and he could have told me any news of the day when he got home. He didn't waste words. He said, there's been a terrible tragedy. Sit down. Dramatic, I thought, but I already sensed necessary. I asked, what's wrong? He answered, Barbara is dead. 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 I repeated this out loud several times, several ways in order to give my brain a chance to catch up with the information. Some might think this would be enough to make my brother sound, this might be enough to make my brother sound upset. But I knew immediately there was more to the story since Barbara's death was not something he would have considered a tragedy, and he knew I wouldn't either. Right. He would have been singing Ding Dong, The Wicked Witch's Death. <laughs> that was the whole story. I 
immediately imagined a car accident in New York City, midtown traffic, and my father driving his wife, our stepmother Barbara, somewhere, and a massive metal crunching collision happening with a yellow taxi. Wait, is dad okay? Dad is in jail for killing her. Killing her? Killing her? Wait, wait, wait. How did she die? She jumped, fell, or was pushed out the window of their apartment. All three scenarios played out in my head. They lived on the 12th floor of a plush plush apartment building on East 72nd Street, a wide street in the very posh Upper East Side neighborhood of New York City. I knew he... I knew he must have thrown her out the window because the NYPD doesn't arrest people for murder for simply being in the room when someone falls or jumps from a high-rise window, not because I ever thought him capable of a murder under any circumstances. I also knew the layout of their apartment and the way the windows were framed, which made the idea of an accident very unlikely. And um, at any rate, that's, that's kind of how the whole nightmare came into, into my life. And... Um, uh, the reason that this case, and I'm going to skip a whole bunch of stuff. Um, he was arrested on a Monday. The murder happened Monday around 1.30. And uh, within about 10, it, my father uh, told me later, and I'll, I'll leave that, I'll, I'll give some of the details and some of it is more, you know, detailed in the book. But um, essentially, um, from my point of view, I, I, I was just in so much shock. I, I kept like pinching myself and, you know, touching things and thinking like, is this really happening? And my mother's sister, my favorite aunt from my mother's side actually lived in the same apartment complex that I did. And my brother said, go over to Aunt Esther's apartment and I'll meet you there. I'm in the city and I'll, you know, I'll come, I'll be back in half an hour. And so he comes in, we turn on the news, 10 o'clock news, they're showing, you know, like top story, husband kills wife, you know, throws her out the window. They're not saying accident, suicide, anything. <laughs> they're saying, you know, this guy got killed his wife, threw her out the window, and he's in police custody. And the next day was the arraignment, which um, this is the, I think it was the first year that Law and Order was ever on TV, so this is before <laughs> everybody knew the whole you know, oh, this, you know, they get arrested, then they have arraignment, then maybe they get bail and they don't get bail, and, you know. <laughs> so, so everything was new, you know, and, um, and the next day, so obviously that night I'm not sleeping very well. Um, the next day my brother is, goes around, gets all these references and things for the judge to read about my father, who had been an amazingly upstanding citizen. He got a reference letter from the chief of police of England Cliffs because in my town, my father was so well respected and loved that we all got little police benevolent association badges <laughs> in case we ever got stopped for, for speeding or something. Wow. Because my father used to give huge donations of things to the police department. Like um, through his business, he used to get literally shopping bags full of tickets to the circus and the ice capades and all the big shows. And he used to bring them and give them to the police department because there were lots of cops with lots of kids and those were expensive tickets. So he would just bring them and give them to the fire department, the police department, the ambulance corps. And, you know, they loved my father. And um, and police would randomly stop at our house just to see if we were okay. Like, it was that kind of relationship. That's awesome. He wrote a letter for the judge. You know, this is a wonderful man, blah, blah, blah. Even though he hadn't lived in England close for like nine years at that point. He'd been with my stepmother. And um, at any rate, um, my father gets an incredible legal team. Um and it was the lawyer, actually the same lawyer 
who got Larry Flint off for his obscenity charges. Oh my gosh! <laughs> Remember back in the day? Yes. He was being held, he was uh, on trial for obscenity, and um, this particular lawyer, Harold Price Farringer, has now passed away. He was the attorney who, who got him off and was a big free speech proponent. Yeah. Um, so at any rate, he gets this dream team of lawyers. Um, my father's best friend is a, a lawyer, but not a criminal lawyer. Tells me and my brother, they're not going to let your father out on bail because he's got the means to flee the country. And it's such a heinous and public crime right. um, that, you know, they're going to keep him. They, they're going to deny bail and uh, deny. Yeah. So. Anyway, we go to the courtroom, and that's a whole experience in itself. <laughs> and um, if you're ever interested in the difference in justice for rich people versus not rich people, <laughs> there's a chapter for you in my book. Uh, <laughs> and because as we're sitting there, and the arraignment is like taking forever, it's going way past what it was supposed to happen, and the courtroom is nothing. I expected like a beautiful wood panel library with warm lighting and, you know, justice dispensed like books in a library. (laughs) It was full of of the scariest looking guys you've ever seen in chains. So many of them in the front of the courtroom that they were even facing like different directions and whatever. Oh my God. Other came in, they cleared out the whole, all of these criminals or alleged criminals and they bring my father in separately and he looks fine. Like he comes in and, he doesn't look distressed, and he kind of winks at me and my brother from across oh the room. Oh, my gosh. And anyway, I describe all this, but, you know, to make a very long story short, he does wind up getting bail for $100,000, which Can is you just... imagine? Can you imagine? Wow. <laughs> I mean, that was a lot of more money back than I sure. But, but still, with still. his money and, you know, him being a flight risk and yeah. the violence of the crime, you don't right. often... I, I think there's been a lot of reform around that, though, <laughs> from the 90s till now. I think that we've seen a lot of changes Maybe. in the way that stuff is handled as well. So, Well, uh, if I was, a, you know, I mean, I don't know. All I know is, like, we were all shocked because we didn't think he would get out. Right. And it actually turned out to be really good for him that he did get out because um, it took a few days. My brother got all the bail money together and, you know, skip all those details. He gets it. So the murder was on Monday. The arraignment was on Tuesday. Friday, he gets out. I'm to meet, I meet, uh, I'm to go to the lawyer's office, which was on 55th and Madison in Manhattan, right in the middle of Midtown Manhattan. And my brother's picking my father up from Rikers Island, notorious hellhole. Oh my God. Brings him to the lawyer's office. My father walks in with the same clothes from Monday, but my father was an impeccable dresser, like custom made, you know, impeccable. <laughs> walks in, looks better than half the guys walking down Madison Avenue. Not, not distraught. I mean, he killed the woman he loved. I didn't like her, but he loved her. He loved her, he sure. He loved her. And, and then he, he didn't. In and he's just like happy to see his kids. And the lawyers give me and my father. You know, first they were questioning me. I was sitting with one of them, you know, answering a million questions before my father got there. And, um, you know, telling him, no, my father's never, like, been violent at all, ever, ever, ever. He's never even gotten angry. His best friend of 50 years just told me he's known him since they were, you know, preteen, and he's never seen my father get angry. Anyway, um, so I asked my father what happened, and he tells me um, that they were in the bedroom, and... um, and this will, this will give you an idea of kind of 
you know, like why she was my step monster. Um, <laughs> you know, she she used to say really nasty things about my brother right to his face, right in front of my father. And my father would do nothing, and we had a. <sighs> I confronted my father about it because I said it's unacceptable. You would never do this with her kids. Body blah, blah. Well, apparently that day, um, my father and, and Barbara were in their bed, were in the bedroom, and it was around lunchtime. And Barbara was putting on her makeup and getting dressed, even though it was late to be doing that. Um, at her vanity, she had like a little vanity set up in the bedroom, and she started talking to my father, who was dressed, whatever. And um, she said, "Should I call Debbie?" That's what my stepsister's name is in the book. And uh, she said, should I call Debbie? Debbie's a spoiled brat. Now, the relationship between my stepsister and her mother was was what it was, and it's not my business. And like all mothers and daughters, they had their own issues. But apparently, according to my what my father told me, they hadn't spoken for a couple of weeks. And they had been very close. They lived a block apart from each other for a wow. long time. So, so my father... In, and I could predict what he would say without him even telling me what he said. He said, we know Debbie's a spoiled brat, but if you want to call her, call her. That was not my father being judgmental of Debbie. That was my father acknowledging what my stepmother had just said and saying, but if you want to call her, call her. Sure. Um, I assume that my stepmother had probably complained to my father that Debbie was a spoiled brat at some previous time and that they had established that fact. <laughs> And that that was basically what he was saying. My father would never say, oh, your kids are rotten, your kids are this or that. Right. Which I know based on the fact that I know my father, but I also asked him at one of the times when she was insulting my brother, and I said, would you ever insult her kids? <laughs> and she, and he said, of course not. And I said, well, she shouldn't insult yours. Right. Sure. And I said, and I had told him, this was like six months before the murder, I told him, if she ever does that again, you tell her it's unacceptable and stop. I said, it's not acceptable. He should have listened to me. Yes, he <laughs> should have. <laughs> but she, so she says, um, she said, uh, oh, oh, my, you know, my, my kids are spoiled brat. What about your kids? Um, Joni, that fat dyke, I'll never, I'll never forgive her for not going to my father's funeral. Unbelievable. Okay, that's first jab. Now, she knows nothing of my personal life and to me like I live in San Francisco and the word dyke is not a word that bothers me I mean even then when I was living in New York it wasn't a word that bothered me unless somebody's trying to be malicious which she was but you know and and her call she called everyone fat and the idea that she would call you know like fat dyke but but that wasn't even what made me think what really made me think for years and I only figured it out like five years ago (laughs) what she said was she said, Joni, that fat dyke, I'll never forgive her for not going to my father's funeral. And for the life of me, I couldn't figure that out. First of all, I didn't remember that her father had died. Oh, I, I, literally, and I'd only been in his presence on Passover when I was sitting at the, quote, kids table in the hallway where I couldn't even see him. And, <laughs> And I said it, like I said in the book, I couldn't have picked him out of a lineup of short old Jewish men if my life depended on oh I didn't know what he looked like. And I thought, she hates me. Why would she care if I was at her father's funeral? Right. And I couldn't even remember if there was a funeral. Like, to me, it was just such a baffling thing. But I hadn't seen them since my birthday, which was six months before, when she was pulling this whole con on me to get information about my brother. Right. So she had to, I'm thinking she had to pick at something. And she went right <laughs> past that whole thing. I later figured out, 
learning about narcissistic personality disorder that me not showing up at her father's funeral reflected poorly on her. Yes. Yes. It, it, because she expected that out of servitude towards her. It had nothing to do with her father or you paying respects to him or even you knowing him. <laughs> she exactly. just needed you at her service. <laughs> okay. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, my next, my hint should have been the next thing she said which she was way more direct about, you know, in terms of narcissism. She said, so first it's, you know, Joni and Heather, you know, I'll never forgive her for not going to my father's funeral. And then she said, and, you know, your son, she said my name, but I don't use my brother's name. How do you think it reflects on me? First sentence, how do you think it reflects on me that he owns bagel stores, which was not the exact business, but he owned another similar kind of business. How do you think it reflects on me that he owns bagel stores and isn't a professional? Oh. <laughs> to her, a professional right. is a doctor or a lawyer. And if you own, my brother owned three of this successful business, and that reflected, she felt poorly on her. And she was so. married to a man who owned a business and right. was not a doctor or a lawyer. <laughs> and she married him. <laughs> He was good enough, but the son wasn't. Correct. Okay. But, so here we go. So, to recap, you know, here they are in the middle of a, a winter's, you know, afternoon. Should I call Debbie? Debbie's a spoiled brat. We know Debbie's a spoiled brat, but if you feel like calling her, call her. Oh, my kid's a spoiled brat. Well, what about your kids? You know, Joni, Joni that fact, I'll never forgive her for not going to my father's funeral. And how do you think it reflects on me that your son owns bagel stores and isn't a professional? To which my father said, and I could predict it, because again, my father, Mr. <laughs> cool, said, what my son does for a living has absolutely no effect on your life, which is so true. It right? is. That's a good point. And she did not want to take that as an answer. She wanted to fight. And she went over to where my father was standing at the foot of the bed. And she reached out her hand. And she always had, like, long red manicured nails. And she went to scratch by his eye, like, scratch his eye out, essentially. Oh. And he stood there. He told me he stood there. And he was just, you know, he just didn't know how to respond. It was just such a, you know, shocking thing. And then she said, God damn it, is that all you have to say? And she went for his eyes again. And I know that he wasn't exaggerating about the eyes because when I saw him on Friday, and this happened on Monday, he had scabs right next to his eyeball. Oh, my God. Like not down on his cheek, like on his eyeball and under his eye. Wow. And uh, he said, and when she did it the second time, I reached out and I punched her and she fell down and I held her down and I kept punching her. And he said, and then I, he, and he said, I knew it was wrong, but I couldn't stop. And 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 I said, well, was it like an out-of-body experience? Or what do you mean, you, you know, you couldn't stop? And he just couldn't even explain. He's like, maybe, I don't know. But he said that he, he knew it was wrong and he couldn't stop. This comes in later because one of the things about insanity and mental defect defenses in the criminal justice system is you have to not know what you were doing was wrong right. at the time you did it. Right. And, and that's where neuroscience, that's why this case is what they call the, the birth of neuroscience in the courtroom. Because you can have someone who is totally capable of knowing that what they're doing is wrong, yet totally organically incapable of stopping their impulse to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what made this case, well, that's the upshot of the case but um so at any rate 
when he saw, he said, then he realized she was dead. And when he realized she was dead, he thought, you know, I, I don't, you know, how am I going to make the best of the situation? And he threw her body out the window. He cleaned up, threw her body out the window, thinking maybe it would look like a suicide. Oh. And then he tried to leave the building and the police were, of course, already there. And then they brought him up to the apartment. And at first he was like the first few, I read the police report, the first few questions, you know, he's kind of lying. And then, and he, and interestingly, he used profanity. He said the F word several times. And my father had a thing. He had this life code that I talk about in the book called Weinstein Wisdom. Things that, and his first thing was never lie. And he, and I never witnessed my father lie about anything. And here I'm reading it. And his other thing was that using profanity was lazy. He believed it was lazy. There was always a better word. And I, re- I mean, in my whole life, I maybe I heard him use profanity, you know, a handful of times. Wow. And never in frustration or anything. Just you know, mostly as something funny. Right. And so here I'm reading him lying and using profanity in the first five minutes of this police interview. And then all of a sudden, they talk about him standing up, stretching his legs, sitting back down, and then he admitted the whole thing. He told them the whole story, <laughs> and and he confessed to it, which was when I believe he snapped back to his normal self. Sure. And later, um, you know, way later in the in the book, when I learned what really you know what all the mechanics of it were, uh, there's a thing called stimulus-bound aggression. Some people are just aggressive, and that for whatever reason. But there's a thing called stimulus-bound aggression, which is sort of that fight or flight. Like if somebody slaps you in the face, that's a heavy stimulus. And the, where his cyst wound up being was on the thing that controlled stimulus-bound aggression response. Wow. So he so he had this overwhelming response. But at any rate, uh, that's what happened. He tells me about it. Um, he winds up staying with me and my brother over that. Oh, so that's on Friday. We're at the lawyer's office. And then just to, you know, kind of move this along, we go back to the apartment with the, with the lawyer meets us there because it's got all the crime scene tape all around it, right? The, the door. Yeah. And then the lawyer wants to cut the crime scene tape, cuts the tape. We walk in. I describe all the stuff in the book and what that's like. My father is acting perfectly normal. He's not upset. He's not freaked out. Me and my brother are like, you know, couldn't be more scared if we were in a horror movie. And my father's <laughs> behaving like weirdly normal, so much so that the lawyer is looking at me and looking at him and looking at me. The lawyers wound up sending my father because he was acting so normal. And it was, I describe all that in the book because it's just unbelievable to be with someone who killed the woman he loved, who doesn't seem to understand the magnitude of what he did. And to be behaving like normally. And he wanted to sleep there that night. My brother and I are like, no, you can't sleep here. You know, like the way the apartment was, the whole thing. And um, the lawyers wound up sending him for psychological and neurological exams. And they found this enormous, like, orange-sized cyst on his left frontal lobe. Orange size. That's orange size. Nobody had, no, like, it took this to find it. Yeah. That's crazy. This is like a a Grey's Anatomy episode. (laughs) Or House. House. Where was House when you needed him? He would have figured it out. Of course. Now now people are much more aware of like frontal lobe things. In fact, um, one of the things that my father's case ultimately wound up affecting is 
the kinds of defenses that war veterans have when they come home from war. They've been, you know, hit by an IED on the side of the road sure. and their brain rattles in their skull and they don't know that they've got frontal lobe damage. They come home and all of a sudden they shoot, you know, they shoot their family or they, you know, they do something so out of character and people think, oh, it's because they went to war and, you know, PTSD. No, it, I mean, PTSD is part of it. But they have frontal lobe damage that controls impulses and controls, um, you know, stimulus aggression responses and all of these things, which I go into, you know, later in the book for people who are, you know, interested in that, what kinds of brain things can happen. And I actually am fascinated with brain differences. Um, for example, when I was studying things that could happen to brains, there's a thing called Capgras syndrome. I mean, there were, I, I talk about like 10 different ones in the book, but um, Capgras syndrome is when someone actually believes that their loved one was replaced with an exact duplicate and <gasps> isn't their loved one at all. Isn't that crazy? They will not, you, you cannot convince them that their wife or their sister or their kid or their friend, and in one case, their dog is not an imposter that is there Damn. and, you know, they believe it's we'll a kill nefarious them. thing. Like, Crazy stuff happens with brain disorders. Wow, that's crazy because, and the reason I'm going to tell you this is because there's a case right now, um, and I know you've heard about the Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell, and, sure. and, but, you know, she was convinced that her husband was not her husband, supposedly. Now, I'm going to say allegedly because I'm not sure I trust anything anymore from them, but... You know, he, she killed him because she thought that he had died and a demon had taken over his body and he wasn't him anymore. That is, you know, I hadn't heard that about that story, but I'm going to look into it now because that, it could be just a really good defense lawyer wanting to use Capgras syndrome, but it could really be the case. I mean, you know, who knows, but that's. It is a real disorder, and really, there are people who have murdered the, the imposter, thinking that you know who's, who's really their significant person, sure, because they believe like you know what she would. So you know, there are some crazy brain things. That's and, really interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah. Let's don't tell her defense attorneys no. about this. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure they know. I'm sure they know. I'm sure they're looking into everything right now. There's a book that um, actually features my father's story that came out in 2017. It's a great book called The Brain Defense, The Dawn of Neuroscience, uh, A Murder in Manhattan and the Dawn of Neuroscience in America's Courtrooms. And he, um, he and I became friends. He called me out of the blue, and I talk about it in the book. Like I didn't know that when my father was alive, all these people were writing papers about him and talking about him under a pseudonym because he was alive. Right. So I'm, Googling, I'm Googling Herbert Weinstein not knowing that he has this alias Spider Siskov. And Kevin Davis, who wrote The Brain Defense, calls me up in 2012, and he's like, I'm writing a book about brain defenses and, and all these things we're talking about, like, you know, different criminal cases. Right. Where people use a brain defense. And he said, and I, every time I look it up, your father's case is like the case. It's the first case. It's the big case. He said, but I, there's nothing about, you know, him personally. And he committed the crime when he was 65. But we don't know what he was like before that. You know, other than people thought they had a great marriage and they were a great couple. And right. We really don't know. Which is why my book now has all the background about the stepmother and what he was like growing up and all that. But, um but he, I said to him, well, you know, I've been Googling my father, and yeah, I've seen some stuff, and there's a big article in New York Times Magazine from like 2007 called The Brain on the Stand or The Brain on Trial, 
And and it starts right out with when historians look back for the moment neuroscience came into the courtroom, they'll go back to the case of Herbert Weinstein. Wow. But I said to Kevin, I'm like, I've seen some articles, but not that many. And he's like, well, you look for spider syscoff? And I said, who's spider syscoff? Yeah, exactly. Why would you ever think to, why would, why would you ever think that? And, right. And he, and, right. And he said, oh, well, he said, that's the name that all of the, you know, these professionals and neuroscientists and this, there was a whole big, you know, big uh, convention at like Harvard or somewhere where all they talked about was your father's case. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? But they just didn't use his name. But it was 1996, and he was still alive, and they couldn't use his name without breaking confidentiality. So oh, yeah. they named him Spider because it was an arachnoid cyst, which right. has to do with legs and spider. So they called him Spider with a Y, and then Siskopf, meaning cyst head in German, <laughs> Kopf means head. Get out of here. Brilliant. So I'm, so I'm talking to him on the phone, and I'm Googling while I'm talking to Kevin Davis, who's a journalist, he's now like the editor of the American Bar Association Journal. He'd written like three books, great books. One called Defending the Damned, which is about public defenders in Chicago. Great book. Because uh, I was wondering, how do people defend these people? Right. That book is the answer. Okay. Uh, so, I need so to know that. I'm looking up Spider Siskoff, and all of a sudden, all these articles come up. And I'm like, holy moly. Like, <laughs> I can't believe this. Now, like, if you look up Spider Siskoff, you don't really find anything. But if you look up Herbert Weinstein brain, uh, you can find his brain scan on the images tab. You'll find the New York Times article, two That's articles crazy. from Scientific American, two articles from Psychology Today, and a million other academic places and articles and books and um, this whole stack of books that I have behind me, <laughs> uh, which, which you can't see on the podcast, um, all talk about my father's case. It's just, um, wow. it was, it was, and the reason is because um, my father's lawyers, when they saw the cyst, they were like, well, this explains a lot. And it explained a lot to me, although it took me years to really understand because I didn't see the brain scans back then. It, it was years before I saw them and I saw them on Google. Oh my so, gosh. If I had, I thought, the, the neurologist told us, we went to the neurologist, my brother and I went with my father, the neurologist said, look, he's got this giant, you know, this really large cyst, if we operate, he'll probably die on the operating table, and my father's there too, you know, he'll die on the operating table, or he'll be a vegetable, he told us these scary stories of people who had had it done, who were, you know, in horrible circumstances, if they lived, and, um, but he never showed us the scan. So I'm thinking, oh, he's got a large cyst. It's like the size of a walnut. I'm not thinking the size of an orange. Right, right. And when I saw it, it was like, oh, I wish he'd shown me this like a decade ago. <laughs> so, um, so my father's lawyers had to fight to get the right to have his brain scans entered as evidence in the guilt or innocence phase of the trial. Because until then, Usually, if somebody did enter something, like wanted to enter a brain scan, it was in what they called like the, the penalty phase, where are you going to get life in prison or are you going to get the death penalty? Right. And if you could show that you had something wrong with your brain or your mental capacity, then you'd probably get life instead of death. But it wasn't used as part of a defense strategy the way my father's lawyers wanted to use it. So once the prosecutor saw the images... He offered my father, because they were charging him with, um, I think, murder too, plus depraved indifference to human life and some other thing. And once they saw it, they offered him a plea deal of 7 to 21 years. And um, in Kevin Davis's book, The Brain Defense, the, he interviewed the prosecutor, which I didn't do in my book. But the prosecutor 
made it clear that he really only expected my father to do seven years and my father wound up doing, and that's something else. I mean, my father wound up doing 14 years, wow. but something that I learned that I didn't know when you hear these sentences, seven to 21 years or five to 15 years, usually a criminal will do the lower number, the lowest number. And, um, unless they, you know, do something horrible in prison, then maybe they'll go longer, but they keep coming up for parole. Mm. My father kept coming up for parole, and I don't know whether it was the influence of my stepmother's very wealthy family or the fact that the governor had changed and was making a big point of not letting uh, violent criminals out of prison. But my father kept getting denied bail between 7 and 14 years, and then at 14 years, he filed some kind of motion, and the judge actually reprimanded the parole board for not letting him out because he'd been a model prisoner oh wow and, and they weren't letting him out and by the rules of parole because people wonder how do you how do these people get on parole and i'm not saying i agree with any of this in the book i make it very clear you know i don't think that prison is the right place for someone like my father but i don't think there is a right place for my father a mental institution would have been worse that's like one flew over the cuckoo's nest right. and the lawyers told him that too so as of right now, there's no place to really put those people, but I believed he belonged there for the rest of his life. I didn't, you know, I wasn't someone who thought, oh, you know, I hope dad gets off scot-free. Somebody died. Sure. That person has family. That, you know, those people deserve justice. And no, he didn't do it on purpose. The person is still dead, though. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it is really, it's, it's a tough one because, um, you know, the criminal justice system has a lot of really you know, just poor things. And one of the things that I talk about in the book is that um, there was an interview, and you can find it on YouTube, with a Stanford professor who um, was interviewed by Alan Alda on a PBS special called um, The Brain on Trial or something like that. And he says, and I quoted in the book, uh, modern neuroscience and, and today's criminal justice system cannot do not belong in the same room together because we know so much more and if you look at who's in prison and you start screening those people's brains for, for brain traumas and brain injuries, it's an incredible percentage of them have had damage to their frontal lobe. Right. And therefore can't do, you know, are incapable of controlling certain things. Do I think they should be free? No. Does this professor think that? No. And, and the way he describes it is how I think of my father. He says when a car, when the brakes fail on a car, you take the car off the road, but you don't blame the car for having bad brakes. Right. And it's the same thing. You know, it's a machine that's broken. And that's how I look at my father. I don't think my father, my father didn't have a malicious bone in his body. Right. My father used to really dote on doing nice things for people just to do nice things. Right. And one of his things was do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. But do I think he should be on the street? You know, did I think he should be on the street where, granted, it was a stimulus bound aggression response so what's the chance of him being you know somebody trying to scratch his eyes out again very low but i still believe you know like and i talk about it, i had a car that had spontaneous acceleration and then the, they told me at the shop oh there's nothing wrong and i made them keep the car and i got another car because i said well it could happen again and you guys can't fix it right and that's how i felt about my father it's like no it could happen again now he did get out when he was almost 80 so you know i mean i don't think he, didn't, he wasn't in physical shape to hurt anyone. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. It, it wouldn't be a problem. But, you know, those are the things that when I hear about a football player or a war veteran or 
or someone who was abused as a physically abused as a child, when I hear that they're a defendant in a murder or a violent crime, the first thing I think is I hope they have a defense lawyer who does a brain scan. Right. Because, you know, I, I do believe people need to be held accountable, and I believe that people who have brain problems that could cause them to be violent need to be, you know, quote, taken off the road. Sure. But I don't believe that it needs to... I, I think there needs to be a, a whole different education of the public in terms of why these crimes get committed, who these people are, what they're doing. Sure, there's some people who are just nasty, horrible, violent bastards. Right. But, um, you know, and, and the, the prosecutor still believes, um, you know, who was interviewed in Kevin's book, he still believes, he was saying, oh, it's a rich man's defense. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, or he, and he snapped. You know, like people, good people snap all the time. Did he know my father before he was 65 years old and he snapped? No. Mm-hmm. Does he, did he really know what kind of person he was? No. And when you, when you look back and you see really who he was and you don't have a vested interest in convicting him, you have a different point of view, you know, then you can say, well, maybe, you know, he did love her. Maybe, you know, maybe this isn't what I think it is. Right. Maybe. So, so it, it's become a very uh, well-known case and it's, and it started this whole uh, sort of focus of in law schools. It's taught his case is, is the very beginning of the 900 page book called law, law and neuroscience that's taught at Harvard and all the big law schools and, and it talks about his case from different points of view. And, and I talk about all those things in the book. So Absolutely fascinating. Well, I got to tell you, this story is fascinating. We both very much enjoy the, the psychology of crime. Yes. The psychology of murder. We, we've both been just very interested in that for a very long time. And this kind of... That where this isn't really, it's neuroscience, not really psychology, but um, it's almost like a psychopathy that's been caused by a physical intervention of the brain. Right. So I, I think that's very fascinating. I do have a question. Did you ever tell your dad he's famous? Um, I didn't know he was famous until after he died. Okay. Um, so he didn't you know, even get to enjoy the fact that he was famous, <laughs> that all, all these people uh, had been talking about him. You know, I think that he, what I really think his reaction, and I, I knew my father pretty well except for that 10 minutes when he killed her, <laughs> I, think that, I think my father would be really happy that, that, you know, kind of, that there is a positive outcome for people who could not afford the resources that he had. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that now people who, who, didn't have a defense before and who really organically could not have controlled certain things like war vets, he would be happy that, you know, he spent his fortune on lawyers. I, you know, I, I mean, I talk, sure. talk in the book about how my brother and I, you know, got a, uh, our inheritance wound up being a jar of change. <laughs> you know, like, uh, all his money went to his lawyers, but he would be happy that he did something that moved science forward. And that help people who are less fortunate with less resources to at least, you know, be able to find a defense. And and I'm not saying it's something that I want people, like I said, I don't want people to get off because they, uh, you know, to claim, oh, I have a brain thing and I'm not guilty or, right. know, I don't, but I also don't think that people who are, who are incapable of controlling themselves deserve to be villainized to the, you know, with, without understanding 
what caused them. Well, and maybe not housed with people that are just, as you said, mean bastards. I mean, let's put them somewhere where they're not, their lives are not then at risk because of the people that they're being housed with. So I can see where there should be some reform. And I've, we've talked about some cases in, in a couple of different states where the state didn't have a law that was, um, that was guilty but insane. They only had innocent or guilt, they only had guilty or innocent by reason of insanity, which doesn't cover everybody because you can be insane at the time and still be guilty of the crime and you need there needs to be justice served and they don't know where to put these people because they're not they don't fit the legal term of insane but at the time that they created the murder or they did the murder they were in an insanity state so what do you do you don't let them on the street they can't just go walk away you can't go oh well you know they had a moment so we're just going to let them go there has to be some reform, and that's where the the reform of the Department of Corrections really needs to be looked at probably, not just in this country, but in the whole world. I don't know of any country that is so advanced in their correction system that they've got people like your dad that are that are handled differently. I, I totally, totally agree. And, and one of the things that a lot of people don't understand, even a lot of true crime buffs, is that if you're found, um, and, and not every state, it's called the M. Naughton rule, which is um, in order to be found not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect, it's not really called insanity, but that's sure. what we call it colloquially, um, that you have to have not known what you were doing is wrong. In, in New York, where my father is tried, they have that rule, but they don't have that rule everywhere but a lot of people think and i can't tell you how many times i've heard this oh he got off he got off uh, on on an insanity defense which is very rare by the way it, it is the, like the rarest thing defense attorneys rarely even try to do it because you have to prove that the burden is on you but i hear them over and over say he got off easy he was found not guilty by reason of insanity and people assume that those people just go back out on the street they don't the judge then has the power and does almost always commit them to a state criminal psychiatric facility. And then you're talking one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Yeah, terrifying places, horrifying. Which is a hundred times worse than going to a maximum security prison. Sure. So when I hear somebody say, oh, they got off easy, if somebody gave me the choice of going to prison or going to the, you know, the state correctional mental facility, I'm going to the prison. Yeah. I'm going to take my chances. I'm going to let you out. They, see, when you have a part of the reason my father took the plea is because you get a set number of years. But when you're found not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect or, quote, insanity, they don't have to let you out ever. Ever. There's no end date. They can just decide that, no, you're not well. Or they could decide you're fine two weeks later. But chances are they're just never going to let you out, right? And and that's uh, and they just let out what's his name Hinkley, you know? Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, the, and they could have kept him forever, and then just getting out. I mean, who knows with him? Because you know, he obviously had you know real mental problems. I don't know, you know, what his whole story is. But um, there's always like so much more to the story than than people realize. Absolutely, and, it and doesn't it doesn't end in the courtroom. That's not and, where it ends. And as someone who's lived through it and has seen a gazillion articles in, like this, the story was on the front page of the New York Daily News, like big paper in New York, 
when it happened. High rise horror, hubby, you know, throws wife out window. Um, there's so there's so many facts and things and background that they get wrong in every paper, even. Um, you know, from little things like in the New York Times, the day it happened, they said that they were fighting in the living room. They were fighting in the bedroom. Right. I don't, you know, that's a tiny little detail, but it's the New York Times, right? right. Yeah, you would yeah, think right. I'd get that right. <laughs> and where did you, you know, where did, so who did you talk to that you got that? But then there are papers and articles and bloggers. And, and even this year, I happened to search YouTube and found a video that some, I'm assuming he's a student, did about my father's case. And it's so wrong. In fact, he has a picture that he thinks is my father of Hinkley in the back of the car being arrested. Uh, and he's talking about my father and he's getting everything wrong. Oh, oh my no. gosh. And I'm saying, you know, people just, you know, they, if you're really interested in a particular case, I recommend reading books by the people who are related to the person. Yes. You know? And, and, you know, obviously different people have different agendas. I My whole purpose of writing it was to tell the true story because I've read so many incorrect things um the brain defense kevin everything that he said in his book about my father was true i told him as much as i could but he did he's doing it his book is from a journalistic point of view right it doesn't tell you about experiences with the stepmother or what she was like or any of that kind of thing you know or what my father was like when i was a kid or how he responded after the murder nobody knows any of that stuff and he couldn't put that in his book because that's not the journalistic stuff to put in right so I just wanted it there. I know, you know, there'll be thousands and thousands of people who, who already have read about the case or studied the case and many more over the coming decades and whatever. Um, I want them to know that if they really are interested in knowing the background, that the book is there and that they would be surprised by the story versus what they might read. Yeah. Well, and it gives your it gives perspective on who your dad was as a person and even your stepmother as a person. I mean, she was a victim. It, it kind of gives, maybe it doesn't shine the most positive light on her, but at least it, it humanizes her. Whereas um, in a journal, she's just, she's just like the footnote. She's, she's like, she's just the body that flew out the window. Right. So right. she's not really this human victim that had children and a life and a history and that kind of stuff. And so that's also what you've given to your, your father's case is you've given the human side. He was flesh and blood. He wasn't just a study. He wasn't just a, an orange size cyst. That's not he was what somebody's he was. Dad. He was somebody's dad. He right. was a husband to two women, two very difficult women. Three, three. That's right. Oh my gosh. Mind blown. Okay. Well, God bless him for getting married a third time. Yeah. I, I think that that person should have just said, I do to the cyst. <laughs> And not worried about anything else. I'd have been, I'd have been suspicious about am I marrying, am I marrying the sister? Or am I marrying the man here? Right. But it's okay. So, but it's still you've you've humanized him. And I think the to me, what I really take away from this, Joni, is this was your dad and his case and what happened to him. But in the book, it doesn't define you. You give us perspective on you and who you were before any of this happened as well. And I'm very appreciative of that because a lot of true crime novels are just about the crime. And sometimes they give they give a human side of the victim and sometimes even the perpetrator, but not normally the the other the ripple effect of 
of who that murder really did affect. Because we've learned through our research that these kind of cases, murder cases, um, it, it ripples through generations. Right. It doesn't stop. It definitely does. Um, you know, one, one other thing that um, bothered me that I cleared up in the book, and and, uh, and this will just give you an idea, like this, this particular, there, there turned out that there was this big symposium about my father, and they had like four or five people that were involved in the original case in this big session, right? And one of them was a forensic psychologist that they hired when, my, when the prosecutor was trying to prosecute my father. And he came up with these theories, which I talk about in the book, which could have been debunked in three seconds. But basically, he was saying that my father killed my stepmother for her money. And so on the one side, you have the prosecutor saying that my father's defense is a rich man's defense. Yeah. And the guy he hired saying he's so poor that he killed the woman he loved because he wanted her money. What this pro- what this psychologist never knew, because it never he never had to be cross-examined, was that my father and my stepmother had wills, and neither one of them got each other's money if the other one died. Right. Wow. And, and, yeah. I mean, there was a and, but yet that's in the book about law and neuroscience. And sometimes I read things like why did Herbert Weinstein and I've read this on blogs. Why did Herbert Weinstein really kill his wife? You know, oh, he had gambling debts and this and that. And, blah, blah. and all of it is nonsense if you know, but it stays unchallenged because he never went to trial. And those, oh. and even the prosecutor didn't believe the guy who he hired. He didn't use that as, you know, this is what's wrong. But that guy is taken as an expert because he gave an expert opinion during that, that thing. Yeah, that's another angle of, of how these things work that I really get into in the book of, you know, how somebody can say something and then it becomes part of the story. And if it never goes through with a trial... Nobody, you know, this and that guy went on to make a fortune and has a huge company based on the success, based on the fact that he was involved in my father's case. Wow. So that's really sad. So that was another reason. That was another huge thing I wanted to clear up in the book, which I did. So I have a question for you. Did you do the artwork on the cover of the book? I did not, but I worked with an old friend uh, from my from my art director days who is fantastic. Her name is Erin Kelly. And she is in Warwick, New York, and she is amazing. Um, actually, her uh, email is, is inside the book because she did an awesome cover. Just, Good. Uh, I, mean, I, I mean, I'm guessing you asked that because you like the cover. Love it. Love the cover. It's so great. It's so eye-catching. And it just and the cover alone makes you want to open that book. Right. Thank you. Yes, I, I agree. I just, I love it. I have a little poster of it in my house. Oh, oh good. Nice. Uh, yes, ErinKellyGraphicDesign.com. Okay, yes. wonderful. There's her plug. That's awesome. And yes, well, I have to give her a plug because a lot of people buy the book because they love the cover. Oh, yeah. it's very, very, it's yeah, it's great. It so she did a good job. And in case any of our listeners missed it along the way, the name of the book is Full Frontal Murder Memoir, and it's by Joni West. And yeah. it is fantastic. You have to read it. It's just a great book. I can't wait to read it. I didn't have time to read it because, well, I didn't get to the free link before Ann did. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we're very competitive because we're sisters. You can, I believe you can share that book with her. I think, yeah. I think you can share Kindle books. So. I can. Yeah, she can do it now. So, But it's fine. I, I mean, I, I have enjoyed kind of listening to this unfold anyway. And so. Right. And funny. 
There's plenty more in the book, like the third wife and and, yes. you know, and the ending, all that stuff. But oh. thank you guys so much for having me on. I love your podcast. Oh, thank you, Joni. That, that I'm actually on it. <laughs> and, uh, and how are the bourbon balls doing there? Well, let's see. I rolled them. Oh, I put them oh, in the refrigerator. In the refrigerator. I'm sorry. I rolled them. They were messy because it's a lot of butter in there. So I my my hands were a mess, but. I did. I got a pan of them rolled, and they're in the refrigerator, and we, we might need to freeze them before we dip them. We have to freeze them before we dip them, yeah. So they won't be done. To, they won't be ready tonight, I don't think. But somebody has is storing some meat products in my freezer right now. So oh. There's no room to freeze the balls. I don't know who that could be. It could, I mean, what, what other person in your family besides a sister would put her meat products in your freezer? <laughs> it's wonderful because Karen and I live in the same apartment building and we're two floors apart yes oh that's great yeah so oh, we okay. a lot of times we use the elevator like a dumb waiter yes <laughs> we send things up and down and when i drink too much bourbon she'll text my husband and say i'm putting your wife in the elevator catch her when she comes out <laughs> so, but it's I, been i love that it's, it's really i lived with my brother for about three years before i moved to san francisco and when the murder happened, yes. and, uh, and actually it was great that I was living with him when it did happen. Yes. But it's really nice when you have you know a tight relationship with your siblings and you can be that close. Yeah. Yep. Well, we are we are very close. Yes. Yeah. Well, Jenny, so. thank you so much. But this has been such a pleasure. I feel like we met a new friend and yes. more than just an interview with an author. So we appreciate that. Well, thank you so much, ladies. I feel thank like you. I should be hanging out with you and eating bourbon balls. Yes. Well, we wish you were. Yeah, anytime. <laughs> but we'll eat one for you, Joni. I mean, oh, it's yes. what we do. <laughs> Okay, y'all, that wraps it up for us. Joni's gone. Anne has gone to grab the bourbon balls. We have dipped them in chocolate, and we have put a pecan on top of them. We stored them in the refrigerator. They are so delicious, but I would recommend not driving after you eat even one because it is like a little shot of bourbon. It is so good. If you're interested in getting the recipe, you know where to find us. Our email address is murder.sugarcoated at gmail.com. You can find us on all social media, Twitter at Sugar Murder, Instagram at Sugar Coated Murder, and Facebook. We have two pages. One is a private group page. It's the Sugar Coated Murder fan group page. You can ask to join. You know we don't turn anybody away. And we also have a public page, which is Sugar Coated Murder Podcast. You can like us, follow us there if you want. As always, stay sweet. Don't murder. We love the heck out of you guys, and we'll see y'all soon. Bye now. This has been Sugar Coated Murder Podcast, a deliciously entertaining true crime podcast. Like what you heard? You can always explore past episodes by visiting sugarcoatedpod.com. Don't forget to like our Facebook fan page and share with friends. Thanks for listening to sugar-coated murder podcast thank you for listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube you know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. 
Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.